Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. And welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here from the Santa Monica Studios, ready to break down the U.S. Open, the final major of the year from Flushing Meadows, with a lot of history on the line. And we've got two great guests on site to discuss all the drama that's unfolded in the first few rounds. It's former top 10 player and member of the Tennis Channel family, Chanda Rubin, to discuss the women's game, Naomi Osaka, into the third round, didn't have to play her second round match. We discussed Sloan Stevens, Coco Golf, Bianca Andrescu, the players that are still in, some of the players that are eliminated, a lot of Americans that can make a move. Chanda breaks down the women's side. And then it's Gil Gross, who's been calling matches on Tennis Channel, host of the three podcasts on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We discussed the men's side, Djokovic's brief interaction with the crowd that hasn't fully supported him, the Sitsipas toilet break drama, some upsets, of course, a wild rain-infested night. It's the U.S. Open covered thoroughly on Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. And welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Now on the line, we are joined by someone on the ground floor from New York this U.S. Open. It's Chanda Rubin. Chanda, thank you for joining the show. We're happy to talk with you, Fitz. It's been already a couple of exciting days of a tennis here in New York, and the third day we're starting to get play underway again. It's exciting. You said a couple of uh, early, you know, drama-filled days. By my count, we're already almost approaching double digits with men's two-set comebacks. So I know the first couple of days of the tournament are always kind of crazy, but this is almost record-setting, and it just shows you that there is nothing quite like a best-of-five match. No, and I think, you know, you get into, you know, the uh, a major in the last Grand Slam of the year, and all of, you know, the opportunity, what it represents, to not only, you know, win these matches, but, you know, to get out of the first round and to, you know, keep progressing, it's huge. And half the draw gets called down immediately, you know, after day one, um, you know, after day two, uh, in terms of both halves of the draw. And so, you know, it's so much intensity, uh, so much drama, and, you know, players just want it that much more. Yeah, it has been, it's been pretty remarkable to see. And I know we can talk about a couple of different storylines. We're recording this on the heels of Naomi Osaka getting to the third round, doing so via walkover. Uh, her opponent, Olga Dankovic, could not make it through. Naomi gets to the third round, which is good news, Chanda. But on the, on the other side of that, I was left wanting more in the sense of match play. I think, you know, much has been made about the off-the-court stuff, but... On the court, I think yeah. she just hasn't played a lot of tennis, and I don't know that this is necessarily a great thing. While it's good to make the next round, I think she would have preferred to play. Yeah, I, you know, it can be a bit of a gift and a curse. Obviously, you don't necessarily want, you know, to win by walkover or retirement, you know, but sometimes it happens, and you've got to kind of make the best of it. And, you know, for Osaka, rely on the deep well of, of uh, confidence, of, you know, big match wins that she has had, particularly here in New York. And whenever you come back to a tournament where, you know, you have done so well, and as a defending champ, that's you know, certainly the case for her, you come back and you get a lot of those feelings again. And she's also been talking about, you know, how she's trying to approach things a little differently, trying to, you know, be a bit more grateful and just happy, you know, when she wakes up every morning and have that kind of approach and I think that helps as well. And so, you know, the tennis just becomes something that flows from the place you're in mentally and emotionally. Uh, and, and I think overall, she's got enough matches where she can continue to build, although it gets tougher. You know, her potential yeah. third-round opponent, uh, you know, either Kanepi or Fernandez, Leila Fernandez, you know, it could be a little tricky. But I think, you know, she is a confident enough ball striker where things can come together here nicely. I also get the sense, I know they've been compared a lot you know, early in, in Osaka's career to Serena, but it's if she starts playing, she gains confidence each match. 
like the more she plays, the more she wins. She kind of almost is a sense like a tennis freight train that she kind of gets going and, and plays better later into the tournament. So I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, think about the Olympics and, you know, that experience, which was something totally different than anything she has and maybe will experience again in her career, you know, playing in, in her in her in the country that she represents. You know, there was a lot of pressure, a lot of emotion. You know, she lit the torch. She called back the you know, most important moment, you know, of her, her sports life. And, you know, I think kind of getting through that, she can relax a little bit more. Uh, to close out this last major of the year. So I think that should help. Certainly, she's not going to feel as much pressure as she did there. And uh, so sometimes you've got to look, uh, look at the positives, look on the bright side, and use whatever you can to put yourself in a positive place. Other storylines, Chanda, going on in the women's draw. We've got a, a barn burner tonight between Coco Goff and Sloane Stevens. That's like a murderer's row of a section. You've got Kerber over there lurking too. Sloane tops keys in a marathon. And Coco Chanda had to show some real fight in this one. The draw was not doing her any favors. Magda Lynette was a very tough player. Coco found a way to get through it. She's someone that I think each match we have such high expectations on her based on the talent level. But she's showing that she can grind out victories, too, because I think you'd argue that it wasn't her best performance, but she found a way, and, and that's something that aspiring champions need to do. Yeah, I think that's one of the strengths of Coco Goff's game, along with you know some of the other strengths, her ability to compete, the intensity she brings every point. And when situations get tough, she kind of gets tougher, and that's something that's difficult if not impossible to teach she just has it innately and you know she's a, a good a good mover you know she's an athletic player and that she can play in all the areas of the court and so she's got extra gears that she can go to and it, it allows her to make adjustments in matches you know to get through matches like uh, her first round where she wasn't necessarily playing her best but she was able to raise her level when she needed to and get through it but this is this is an incredibly tough yeah. Half of the draw. It's a nasty section <laughs> of the draw. Very you know, nasty. especially when you consider you consider Sloane Stevens her first round. Who she had to play that was mm. against Madison Keys. Mm. That was the final four years <laughs> yeah. ago. Uh, so you know, she had to to get through in a tough tie break in the third set, and then her reward for that up next is Coco Golf. <laughs> yeah. So and, yeah. you know, I think it's it's incredible. Um, you know, the the luck of the draw. Call it what you will, but sometimes you've just got a tough road tough road to walk or to, to navigate and Sloane Stevens certainly you, you can consider that for her and golf here having to play in the second round yeah somehow if Coco makes it to the quarterfinals she would have to go through th potentially three former champions of this event yeah not that much no not that well much. you know you know when Serena won her first when she had to go through five you know potential yeah. hall of famers so hey, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I do. I do like the fact that Coco, uh, her ability to kind of stay consistent. She she doesn't necessarily look as streaky as some of these other players, and that could help her going forward. Um, but yeah, tonight's match is going to be great. Her and Sloan should be great at, at Arthur Ashe Stadium. Uh, another player that, mm -hmm. that that put on a show last night, winning without her best uh, effort and dealing with the health issues, Bianca Andrescu. That match had quite the drama in it, and it was flashbacks of that 2019 run where somehow, Chanda, regardless of the situation, what's happening, how she's feeling, she just finds a way, and that's what happened last night in her first-round match. Yeah, she did, and, you know, she is showing some incredible fight, uh, Bianca Andreescu, with not a lot of matches, and, and this is a player who, you know, has struggled to stay healthy, did not play all of 2020, um, did not come back and defend her U.S. Open title uh, last year. And so coming back here since winning, you know, again, some of those great feelings can help motivate her and help push her through tough moments. But it's not easy uh, coming out on Ash Stadium, being a little underdone in matches and, you know, having to get through tough opponents. But Andrescu was able to do that. I thought, you know, she found a level of consistency. She's still struggling a little bit in that department, but she found a level of consistency when she needed it against a player who has been, you know, in form, who has had a good year in Victoria Goldovich. And Andrescu was able to just outfight her in the end. She had that little extra level of confidence. And you know, there were some kind of scary moments at the beginning of the second set where after Andrescu won a tough first set, you know, it looked like she was having some physical issues again. Uh, called the trainer, had a bit of nausea, but was able to work through that as well. And I think, 
when you get through a match where you're maybe not feeling your best, you're not playing your absolute best, but you get through it in the toughest moments, that is a whole nother level of, of, of confidence booster. And so hopefully for Andrescu, uh, it uh, works uh, along those lines. But you know, she definitely looked good at the end, and there was a lot for her to be proud of. You just know she's going to be in it till the last ball. And unfortunately, in sports, you can't always count on that with uh, a lot of different athletes. But she's one that I think there's no doubt she will give it her all to the finish line. And uh, last night was that. You just you just hope that she can hold up as this tournament, this grueling tournament with the conditions and, you know, without having played, as you said. She's someone that I'm, yeah. I'm definitely keeping my eye on as well. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Jen Rubin here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, a couple other news and notes from the ground. I mean, Ash Barty wins her first matchup. We'll update her as she goes along, Chanda. But so far, so good in Barty's camp. And I can't remember. I mean, you'd have to probably go back to a Serena Williams to just this level of confidence and this level of just play that she's done all the way through Cincinnati winning the title there. Uh, my question for you being, does she remind you of anybody with the way she plays, looking at her style of play and just the confidence that she exudes? You know, it's interesting. You know, you might you might be able to compare her style of play to somebody like a Justine Enna. Um, you know, maybe uh, an Amelie Moresmo to a certain degree in terms of how, you know, free-flowing her game can be. Uh, but she's been kind of in, in a class of her own because she's been the most consistent player, Ash Barty, you know, this season. And coming off the heels of winning Wimbledon, winning you know, her, her second major, on a different surface, I think that has given her a, a real boost of confidence. And it's interesting, we, we think back to the beginning of the year where there were questions about, you know, is she really the number one? Because she didn't play throughout all of 2020. It wasn't because of injury, uh, but, you know, because of travel situations, it's just it's, she was not able to move in and out freely, but has been able to come back in incredible fashion. And I think that more than anything has been most impressive. She's got a lot of variety in her game, but she's got a real weapon in the forehand. She gets a lot of mileage behind her serve, Barty does. And, you know, she's finding a way to get the matches that would be a lot tougher on paper. That first round against Vera Zonareva, a former mm-hmm. U.S. Open finalist, world number two, that got tricky in the second set. And she just had you know, supreme level of confidence to work her way through it in, in the tiebreak in that second set. So, you know, you've got to like her chances here, although this has always been a trickier major for her to navigate. You've got to kind of like her, her chances quietly. You know, she can quietly move through this draw, but she's got a tough one as well in the second round against, uh, you know, teenager Clara Sosan. Yeah, somehow she hasn't actually made the second week of the U.S. Open yet. you got to think that there's a great likelihood that changes. Uh, mentally, she's just so locked in. I think that's one of her best qualities, and that she's just so you know, in the moment from point to point as well. Uh, Barty just exudes confidence. I like that Henning comparison because some of these players, it seems like they just don't know what to do with her out there, and um, it, mm-hmm. it's definitely something to look out for. Another you know, player yeah. that's been looking good and is kind of starting to round into form, maybe, I know it's early, but I like what I've seen out of Simona Halep. You can say the same for Garbini Muguruza, two you know, multi-time major champions that had issues with the health, but Chana, they look like they're kind of, again, rounding into form. Yeah, I think, you know, the Garbini Muguruza, you know, she got through, both she and Halep got through their, their second round matches and are into the third round. They can sit back, relax a little bit on what will be a trickier day with the weather. Uh, Muguruza played very well against an inform Andrea Petkovic. And, you know, she knows what it, it is like, what it takes to win on these big stages. So she can always be dangerous. And, you know, she has had, you know, really fantastic form of late. She's just been a little more under the radar uh, in terms of the consistency. But she's definitely sort of one of those dark horses here. And, you know, Simona Halep, who has struggled with injury all year, various injuries. Uh, that didn't necessarily require her to have any procedures, but have kept her out nonetheless. And you know, the most recent 
uh, being a, uh, a leg, a calf injury over the Clayport swing that kept her out of Roland Garros and Wimbledon, and then a thigh injury, maybe as a result of compensating. So hopefully that body part is holding up nicely. She looks good in her uh, match earlier today, was moving well, uh, was hitting confidently, and got better as the match went on. And so I think that is a good sign for Simona Halep, the fact that she's here, she's healthy, this last major of the year. And, you know, she, was, she had a lot of smiles <laughs> over the yeah. course of that match. Yeah. I think that was a good sign as well just a lot more relaxed and, you know, maybe uh, feeling like she can trust her body here as she tries to make her way through this event. Yeah, help actually relying on the serve and volley, which she said she practiced because she couldn't move. It was, I've got to work on something, might as well be serve and volley, which I thought was funny to hear. Uh, another thing, too, I mean, we mentioned Coco Goff in that, in that brutal section, Sloan Stevens, another American in there. There's two other Americans I wanted to bring up that I think could be dangerous threats to make a move here. Uh, Danielle Collins, who's been looking good and been, been just pummeling the ball, but also Jesse Pagula, who has been playing well, has been gaining confidence from the start of this year, and also I think Janda has a section that she could take advantage of. So are you in turn buying high on these two American women? Yeah, I think you know Danielle Collins has had, you know, had an incredible start to the hardcore swing, winning back-to-back titles at one point, you know, just on an incredible win streak. And got a little run down a little bit from just the back-to-back play. Uh, so needed a little bit of rest and recovery. Uh, but I think, you know, if she is recovered and if, she is, if she's got the energy, which is such a staple of her game, the intensity, uh, she can be a real, a real factor here. And kind of if she gets through her second round, you know, looming for her would be potentially Sabalenka, which would be a big hitting battle. That would be a big test for, you know, Danielle Collins in terms of styles and matchups. But, but she could be dangerous. And Jessica Bagula has been impressive. She has consistently raised her level of play. She's a solid hitter. She's got some weapons, especially the backhand, which is a beautifully constructed shot. She's gaining confidence, Pagula is. And, you know, she's done the work. Uh, has gotten fit and looks like she believes that she belongs in the latter stages of these big events, going to you know her first Grand Slam quarterfinal not too long ago, and I think that's a, a huge, huge confidence boost for any player when you when you see that you are able to actually perform in those big moments on the big stages. That's a different level of confidence, and so Jessica Bagula absolutely in that top half could be could be dangerous. And we've got Shiantek, um, you know, around her section. We've got, you know, Barty, who we talked about, Belinda Bencic. But, you know, I think she would match up well against all of those players. It's an exciting time, obviously, of year, and the fact that there's so many juicy matchups early is good. Uh, Chanda, thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your busy schedule broadcasting matches and, and working at the U.S. Open. I would also say one last thing. I think that the Coco Golf. Sloan Stevens, Naomi Osaka, Kerber quarter, whoever comes out of there is going to be just brimming with confidence. So that might be one to look at down the road. I I think that that, that section, section six, whoever comes out of there is going to believe that they can rightfully so just about beat anyone. Well, I'll have to say I heard it here first, but I, I agree with you. I think that person would be so much tough and, and ready uh, that they would definitely be probably the, the favorite if they're able to get out of that section. But it's been great talking with you. I'm glad we could uh, we could chat about what has been an exciting, you know, first two and a half days here in New York. That's Chanda Rubin on Tennis Channel Inside In. Chanda, best of luck. Hope to see you in person soon in the next couple of weeks. Okay, you too. Take care. Huge thanks to Chandra Rubin, and uh, that discussion took place before Sloan Stevens' thorough, dominating victory over Coco Golf. Who knows, maybe she's the one to come out of that Section 6 gauntlet and really be a major player as someone that's won the tournament before. She believes she can do it again. Thanks again to Chanda. Now we're going to flip it to the men's side. Gil Gross on site for U.S. Open Radio. He also hosts the three podcast calls matches on our network. He's got some thoughts on the men's side. Djokovic's first round matchup and uh, you know not having the full crowd support, Tsitsipas' toilet break drama, the uh, grounds, the buzz swell, what's going on there, Cressy with the big upset, Kyrgios flaming out. A lot of thoughts with Gil Gross on Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's bring him on to the show now.
All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, another family member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. He hosts three, a tennis podcast along with Amy Lundy and Joel Drucker. He also hosts a podcast known as Monday Match Analysis and uh, has recently started calling matches right here on TC. And he's now calling in where he's working from the U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows on the radio from the grounds there at Skill Grow Skill. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mitch. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, so it's great to be on. Well, I appreciate that a lot, Gil. And uh, I'll be honest, though, uh, I up until about you know midday on the West Coast uh, yesterday, I had an entirely different uh, plan for how we were going to start. It was going to be more positive. It was going to be you know just walking through the early days of the tournament and the buzz, which we will still get to. But yesterday was unlike just about anything we've seen in a long time. And I know you were there on the site for all the heavy rain, the cancellations, just. The uh, oh, I guess it would be like an apocalypse almost. But if you could start <laughs> with the middle of the day towards the evening, when did you kind of get the sense that you know stuff was happening and this was going to be a wild evening? It, it took me a while to to realize that, Mitch, and I think it, it actually took everyone a while to realize that because for most of the day, the mood was oh wow, like we're actually getting all this tennis in. The the rain is holding up. Every single singles match except one was was able to to finish last night, uh, with the exception of uh, the Anjali Kerber match. So the mood went from wow, the weather's really cooperating to wow, the weather is kicking our butts in a very short period of time. And uh, I was inside Louis Armstrong Stadium, which is a covered stadium. But at a certain point, it became very clear that because of the high winds, it is an open air stadium with natural ventilation. So there's opening on the sides of on the sides of the courts. Uh, it, it became clear that with the heavy winds, the rain was so sideways and so powerful, uh, combined with the wind, that it was actually getting onto the court. The water was making its way onto the court and. Diego Schwartzman actually slipped and fell on on the service line at one point even. And uh, so it was really difficult for the players. And I was in there. Um, it took a very long time for the match to be officially canceled. And only then did it become a matter of, wait a second, this is getting so bad that people are worried about getting home. The Long Island rail, Railway was was closed. Uh, the the seven train was closed, which is the subway that a lot of people will will rely on to get back to Manhattan and ultimately get home. Yeah. Uh, so it became it became pretty worrisome. I was very thankful, obviously, as a USTA employee, that that they were um, extremely supportive and got us home safely uh, via shuttle. But um, it, it was concerning for for the fans, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, 1.30 a.m., basically after one tennis ends, the grounds are closed, right? And then it's like, I don't want to say it's every every person for themselves, but there was a lot of concern with how are people going to get home. Um, you know, you host a podcast called Monday Match Analysis, so we can go a little Monday morning quarterback. What do you think the U.S. Open, the grounds, the, uh, the powers that be there, what do you think they could have done differently, if anything, to help uh, mitigate some of these disasters? In 2020 hindsight, they should have said, we're going to do a day session and the night session is canceled. And uh, had they done that, everything would have worked out very smoothly because the weather really didn't get all too bad until later on in the night. I, I don't have much of a sense of, of time of, of when it got bad, but I do know that it wasn't until about midway through the first set of, of Schwartzman and Anderson, which was a seven o'clock start. Um, that's when it really got bad. So I think, uh, the Mets actually preemptively canceled their game, and that was kind of shocking to see. It was kind of a signal that, okay, the, the radar must be really bad if they canceled their game the day before the game. They almost never do that. So what, what it should have been a hard cutoff around 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. Uh, where, where it was no play after that. Well, we know this is the remnants of Hurricane Ida, you know, historic flooding in New York, obviously much more devastation south, so prayers up uh, to everybody dealing with that. Uh, on the positive side, getting back to, you know, the, the goodness of having the U.S. Open with fans, you were there from the beginning, uh, Gil, and as we look at kind of how that started, I think this was like the first tournament, especially back in the U.S., the, the first of this magnitude, where 
the buzz is back. You have fans on the grounds. You have the that combined with the fact that there's an early tournament with so many good matches on different courts. What's that experience been like now you're covering this tournament and just seeing all the great tennis you popped around to different courts, saw some of the upsets. What's it been like you walking the grounds and having the buzz be back in a Grand Slam tournament? It's been really great, Mitch. It feels pretty normal, I would say. The crowds have been really good, especially on Tuesday, uh, where a lot of the outer courts were standing room only. Uh, they were they were stuffed, and there were some really awesome environments. I mean, uh, I think the players also so appreciate it. I mean, you could look at Bashek Pospisil's social media. I was at his match against Fabio Fanini. Uh, it was an incredible atmosphere on one of the, the smaller courts there. The upset of the tournament, uh, Maxime Cressy over Pablo Carina Busta, I'd say so far that is your upset of the tournament. And the American crowd soaked that up. They were chanting Cressy's name. Uh, and just th- those, those fantastic moments um, in the early going of major tournaments where you have so much singles action on the outer courts and you get these awesome environments. That's what it's all about, you know. Then later on, uh, we can look for the uh, the environment in Arthur Ashe Stadium to to kind of pick up and the larger courts. We actually did see, I think, a great crowd match that I didn't get to see any of, but with uh, Murray and Tsitsipas, that looked pretty electric inside Ash as well. So the crowds have been great. I'd say there's a little bit of trepidation, there's a little bit of nervousness, and there are obviously still masks. Uh, those who, who are choosing to wear them around the ground, some are, some aren't. Uh, but other than that, the crowd size and the noise level is normal. And you mentioned that Cressy match. I think that was a great experience. It's been the upset of the tournament beating Pablo Carina Busta, but we, we often talk about kind of that upset energy with the crowd. Did you kind of have a sense that there were, now maybe not with that match, maybe not with that you know crowd in particular just watching on the court, but on the grounds there was that feel of, Something's happening here. And then you get the overflow of let's go check out what's going on in this court. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think it was that match. Yeah, I, the, that match started as a match with a, a normal-sized crowd, and it did become a everybody gather around. And one of the cool things about that part of the grounds is you have court four, five, and six right next to each other. It literally looks like if you've ever been to a, a wrestling tournament or maybe a table tennis tournament – how they kind of have, you know, multiple action going on um, in the same sight lines. And that's what court six is like. Plus the practice courts are right there. So you totally had everyone kind of gravitating towards that court as the fifth set wore on. Then you got the fifth set tie break, uh, a U.S. Open special. And uh, it was extremely dramatic, obviously, with Pablo Carreno Busta having a match point and ultimately double faulting horribly on it. I mean, middle of the net, mm. clearly just the nerves getting to him, and you hate to see that for, for PCB, but then Cressy really took that and ran with it. Exciting stuff, and, and I think the U.S. Open especially, Gil, I mean, I just like having, you know, the buzz being back, not just with, you know, the, the fans themselves, but, you know, the players getting to see Des Bryant there, getting to see Steve Nash. This is, you know, this is a high-profile tournament, the highest-profile tournament in this country, and it's good to see some of the stars coming back out to watch that. Yeah, totally. I saw I saw Mike Tyson. Um, someone was stuck. Oh, Ben Stiller last night. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Stiller, the nugget on that is Stiller is such a big tennis fan that he wasn't even on Ash. He was on Armstrong because clearly uh, he probably wanted to see uh, uh, Schwartzman and Anderson. <laughs> so um, I just found that funny because normally the celebrities, they're just going to go to Ash. But, but Stiller is a massive tennis fan, and, and he was on Armstrong. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Gil Gross here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, let's get to kind of your area of expertise more so than others. You host that podcast called Three, and uh, the only one of those three in this tournament is Novak Djokovic. He's going for history, the uh, calendar slam. This is the last one left. And that first-round match against Holger Rune, who was the top 
ranked junior player in the world not too long ago. Went four cents, was exciting. Djokovic gets the win, but I think the story of that match would be the fact that the crowd was more for the underdog, and Djokovic, you know, will we'll, we'll play the diplomatic game, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gil, this is not something that he inspected, expected and something that he embraced. So were you shocked by the fact that the crowd, for whatever reason, just won't fully get behind Novak as he chases history? I was surprised and I wasn't because on one hand you have Holger Rune, an 18 year old playing his first ever match at a major and bringing some awesome tennis to the table, some fiery and explosive tennis, and then showing a lot of emotion and how much it, it means to him against, you know, the, obviously the, the 20 time uh, grand slam champion in, in Novak Djokovic. So you have that, underdog that massive underdog and generally speaking especially after how the first set went it was 6-1 in blowout fashion for Djokovic generally speaking the crowd is going to get behind the underdog so in that sense it didn't surprise me however I think I think I can say this as someone who has been going to U.S. Open night sessions for for the last decade the crowd would not have gotten behind Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal's opponent as heavily as they got behind Holger right. Rune. And I believe that to be true. Uh, I just think the, the level at, at which it went to was a little bit um, past what the crowd would have gone to uh, had Federer or Nadal been the opponent, or obviously Serena, to throw her in there. Um, so in that respect, I was a little bit surprised because I really do think that Djokovic is going to get uh, some support here in New York because he's chasing history. And look, I could be wrong. I might be totally off base. I still think that the crowds later on in the tournament are going to be more pro Djokovic than we might be used to in New York. Um, so, so we'll see. You know, but the great question, Mitch, and I think people go multiple ways on this, is you know, obviously Novak as a human being wants the crowd to root for him. And people kind of say like, oh, he, he wants the crowd to root. Like that's some kind of weird trait. No, everybody wants the crowd pretty much to like them. Uh, the question is, and I don't have an answer to it, and I think nobody does, is does it help him or hurt him in terms of how well he plays tennis? And I, I've, heard, I've heard people go both directions. I've heard people say, oh, uh, Novak's always better when the crowd goes against him. It fires him up. But I've also heard people make the case for, well, not having a crowd on, on his side is a detriment to him, and he's able to overcome it and win in spite of it. Yeah, that, those are good points. I might just split the difference with you on that one. I think it helps him when he's going against Rafa and Roger because I think he kind of expects that, and that's more realistic. Like, these guys are just their statures. I don't think I, – I don't know that he'll ever accept it or be fine with it, but I think he understands that he's not going to get the support of those two guys. But when he's playing – I don't want to say an unknown, but somebody that hasn't had any national success at the pro level, I think that hurts him, and I think that might affect his game and be a detriment to him. But it's a fascinating dichotomy because, like you said, we have a guy chasing history, and you know whether you love him or hate him, you can go with a lot of these all-time greats and, and just look at it. I just I agree. I don't think that this would have happened to many players and the fans being against him, and I think it's fascinating and, and unfortunate in a lot of ways. I think it's good to root for an underdog, and it's human nature, but some of this feels like it's forced, like whoever Djokovic is playing, the crowd will be cheering for in some ways. I agree. Uh, I think it, it is, on a certain level, disappointing. At the same time, people should root for whoever they want, you know, and nobody should really tell them who to root for, uh, but, but there does seem to be a lot of ultra-casual tennis fans uh, that do not appreciate Novak Djokovic. And, you know, I, I don't I don't fully – there are many theories about why uh, that could be the case. And, you know, I, I think it would be really hard to pin one down. Uh, but it's the truth. There are a lot of casual tennis fans who are not fans of Novak Djokovic. There are many more diehard tennis fans that, that do love him, that, that are in tennis uh, in, in a large way. So I think – when you, when you have a, a tournament at the scale of the U.S. Open and you have a lot of people who don't watch tennis year-round, don't follow tennis, but they obviously come to the U.S. Open, uh, a lot of that demographic has a negative perception of Novak Djokovic in my, you know, in my experience. Um, 
So, so that's kind of the dynamic. The one thing I think we'd be remiss not to address is also that Novak thought the crowd was booing him, and so did Rune at certain points. Uh, unfortunately, that's a case of lost in translation, as any American sports fan would be familiar with the tendency of American crowds to turn any name with an ooh in it to kind of say, okay, like Mike Messina at Yankee Stadium was yeah. Moose and, uh, you know, Mookie Betts, the, you know, the baseball player, uh, the crowd would go Moo mm-hmm. uh, or Roberto Luongo, the hockey goalie. Anyway, so this is a very normal thing um, for, for crowds to do, but unfortunately Djokovic and Rune just were not aware of that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this proceeds along the tournament, but we know mentally the guy Djokovic is checked in and he'll be able to uh, handle what's in front of him. Uh, let's talk about uh, another storyline of the tournament, somebody else that's not exactly popular with the New York City fans. And that's Stefano Tsitsipas, who is 2-0. and You'd think that'd be great. He beat Andy Murray. He beat Manorino last night, but that's not what everybody's talking about. It's these kind of <laughs> elongated, would be the nicest way to put it, toilet breaks that he's taking after the third set in each match and uh, in, in each case has been met with uh, some resistance and some criticism from the fans, from broadcasters, but importantly, and I think most importantly, Gil, the players that are he, that he's competing against. He says he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong, doesn't get what the issue is. Players, fans, commentators think otherwise. What's your take on how this whole thing has unfolded, the Sitsipas toilet break uh, scenario? Well, to be fair, some players have defended him and some players have not. So I, I, I actually think this is one of those rare cases where as the fans fight about this, I think the players aren't on the same page either. I think Manorino defended him. I think Sloan Stevens sort of defended him. Um, basically, some people are just blaming the rule. And uh, that is kind of where I stand. I, I, I have, a, I guess, a, a nuanced opinion here. First of all, if you've been following Stefano Sissipas throughout his career, he will do whatever the umpire and the rules allow him to do. This is totally not a new thing with him. He will... He will change his racket at a questionable time. He will, you know, say that he needs to change his shoe at a questionable time. Like these are things that, that he does and he has been doing for his entire career. So as a fan, you get to decide if you're okay with that or if you're not. And if, you know, if you dislike him for that, that's okay. Uh, I also don't think that that makes him a bad person, right? We see some people on tour uh, who, who are guilty of far worse. Than, than the things that, that Tsitsipas m- might be guilty on um, when it comes to kind of a gamesmanship perspective. Uh, so I think that is, is something to keep in mind. But, you know, a lot of players have, uh, are doing this. And I heard something interesting from a player and kicking myself because I don't remember who it was, but um, they said, as a tennis player, you are taught when losing to change something, to do something different. That's what you're taught. And that's what Tsitsipas is doing. And the rules allow him to do that. So I, I think it's, it's a difficult situation because, I mean, you can blame the man or you can blame the rules that just allow him to do what he's doing. Yeah, I have a couple things to unpack here. Number one being, I mean, I like, I like Tsitsipas. I like his game and I, and I understand, you know, the strategy behind it. This is gamesmanship at its core. And this is like, like you said, the fact that, and we see it in different sports with different athletes, unless a rule is, you know, made and properly enforced, players are going to see what they can get away with. That's just how sports work. And look, I think part of the problem is, I mean, the main problem is that they're not enforcing the fact that there's this indefinite amount of time. Reasonable, that's what it actually states in the rule book. Now, what's reasonable is, is relative to what people define it. Obviously, Murray was pissed off and he wasn't happy with the fact. And you can you can understand his perspective given that he given that he has, you know, the surgeries and, you know, older athletes are going to stiffen up a little more and get tight by not playing. I just didn't, and, and I know Sitsipas is an irreverent guy. He w- marches to the beat of his own drum. I get all that. But the part that I didn't like, and this is just me as, a, as an outsider here, saying that, okay, you know, fans don't really understand because they haven't really competed at a high level. Well, that's true, but you're, you're hearing the loudest voice from players that have won multiple Grand Slams. I don't know what the, what the outcome of this debate is going to be, unless they change or enforce the rule. This is just, you know, just, just going to keep happening. I agree with you. I think, I think it will keep happening. And I also don't think that's a good argument uh, for Tsitsipas. 
you know, I think the best course of action for him would be to first of all explain what might take so long mm-hmm. um, and also just kind of own up to like, look, they don't tell me that I need to rush. So why am I rushing? Like I am going to take my time if they let me take my time. I think that would be the best uh, course of action for him from a from a PR perspective. Yeah. You know, maybe not tell maybe not in complete graphic detail. <laughs> tell exactly what's going on there. That's but true. No, I, I understand what you're saying, and it's another added subplot. He's another guy that obviously just doesn't care what the outside noise says about him, which can be a great thing when you're contending for a Grand Slam and you're one of the uh, main contenders. You know, let's just move back now to some of the other storylines. And one of the best ones, you, you mentioned Cressy with the upset of the tournament. How about the American males? Uh, it doesn't include John Isner, but a lot of American men won round one, keeping it going into round three for a few of them. This, to me, is is one of the stories, not just because the Grand Slam is in America, but finally for the first time we've seen a, a quantitative early round success from these American men. Totally, and the, the best part about it is it was uh, actually very predictable. Uh, with, I, I do have some, some stats that I, that I can pull up here just about the draw. Uh, so obviously the one that everyone's been talking about is 14 Americans in the top 100, the most since 1996. Uh, but 21 American men in the draw, also the most since the 90s. And uh, France is the next country on the men's side with 13. So just by a numbers game, you were bound to have some American uh, winning some some matches and going far. Um, obviously, Nakashima with the disappointing loss after upsetting John Isner to, to Molchan. Molchan's red hot right now. Uh, you have um, Cressy pulling off that surprise, and he's in action again today. Uh, Korda, unfortunately, was sick with food poisoning, um, and that was one disappointment. And now tonight we'll have a, a fascinating matchup between Taylor Fritz and Jensen Brooksby, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, so I might be dating myself, but uh, th- that'll be that'll be a very interesting one as well. But yeah, a, a lot of buzz, uh, a lot of good stuff. And I, my take before the tournament, Mitch, was that one American would make the quarters this year. That was my take. So we'll see if that works out. Well, we are going to get it out early today, so before the, the Fritz-Brooksby match, so no need there. And, and honestly, that could be your best bet, the winner of that match, to just keep it going to the quarterfinals. Um going to be exciting and and i like i like the 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 basics of it gil your theory it's the numbers game we got the we got the most in it just about so we're going to have the most opportunities it's been good to see it's been good to see these players take advantage of uh opportunity uh what else has stood out to you i know you've been around the grounds and you've seen a lot of the different uh the different storylines and subplots and, and i've been following you on twitter i love the fact that you're picking up little nuances like sabalenka looks miserable after she hits a winner what else is stood out to you? <laughs> mm, um, well, I guess I guess watching Djokovic courtside for the first set against Rune, and, and then I went elsewhere. Um, but the ability to watch one player when and and close up when you're at live tennis, I think is a pretty unique one, and uh, just the way they move not to the ball, but in between shots, the way they recover, the way they, they anticipate, uh, the way they move almost off the ball. And Djokovic in particular, there's not a single moment where he is not powerful, athletic, balanced in his movement. And uh, I think the ability uh, to just watch one player up close and not watch the ball, I think is very fun at, at live tennis. So I don't know. That's, it's one one experience. Just watching Djokovic courtside is obviously going to, to stick out in my head. Um, but another thing on the women's side, I know I know Chanda is gonna gonna cover a lot of the the women's stuff on this pod, um, and it's an honor to be on the same podcast as her, by the way. Uh, but I love that the seeds, the the high seeds on the women's side, are winning uh, and taking care of business. And most of the noise early on has come from the men's matches. And that's where the, okay, upset alert, upset alert. We saw Casper Ruud lose uh, yesterday as well, for example. Um, I love that the women are really going to set up blockbusters, uh, big name matches later on in the tournament, because that is, uh, that is kind of a, a role reversal from some of what we've seen in recent times. 
It's been it's been fascinating. I know we I actually talked to Chana before uh, the Sloan Coco match, and we we just mentioned that section, section six, kind of that section of death almost in the women's side. And now that Sloan's won that match, she's a, a, a live underdog, as they say. I, I think the fact that you have so many good uh, so many good players and so many good you know so much depth on that side as well makes for a lot of upsets and fascinating early rounds. W- one final thought here, Gil Gross on uh, Tennis Channel Inside In. The seed debate has been has been discussed for a lot of uh, years now. Going, should we go down to sixteen seeds? And I don't know where you stand on it, but my thought is, if we have great depth in both these games, it almost doesn't even really matter. Like we're we're seeing exciting first round, second round matchups now, and I think that's a testament to the depth and the quality of talent on both tours. Yeah. I, I like the idea of going to 16 at the same time. I mean, yeah, so we are seeing excitement, absolutely. But, you know, we could always get more of it uh, if we went to 16. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think it would be a good thing. I mean, I guess, yes, uh, there is something to be said for just protecting these guys, protecting the top seeds, having them go deep. I do think that that uh, name recognition and star power late in the tournament is very important. I mean, people like to talk about underdogs and how they're exciting, uh, but let, let's be real. And this is true in March Madness. This is true all across sports. If the stars aren't there, the 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 product is suffering. Um, with that being said, I think that the top eight, let's say, on both sides, I think they're so good. I don't think it would matter. You know, uh, just because they're tested. Look, if you're going to win this tournament, you need to beat top players and look if you if you really think about number 20 in the world against Daniil Medvedev there's still not a great like the number 20 in the world it's still a heavy underdog there they're still a heavy underdog so while it might Daniil might get tested for example I still think that you're not just going to have carnage of the top seeds if you went down to 16. Yeah, the specifically on the men's side, I agree there. I, I just, I think it's almost like a non-issue, and, and a lot of that is because of what you just said, because the top players are so good, there could be more excitement, but we'd probably still get most of the same, if not all of the same quarterfinals. Uh, Gil, forgot to mention one last thing before I let you go. Um, one last player story. Um, I, I don't want to predict doom and gloom in the end, but do we ever see Nick Kyrgios back, let's say, in the top 30, top 20, top 30? Oh, very, very good. So I was at his, I was at his match against, um, against Roberto Bautista at Gooch, start to finish. I don't think we ever see him in the top 30, Mitch. I think maybe we can see him make a run, uh, but there are a lot of issues that, that are obviously there that have plagued him for, for years and years. It's been so long since he's been in a, a major quarterfinal. Uh, I, I believe since his breakout at Wimbledon as a, as a youngster, yeah, that's right. uh, when he beat Nadal that year. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, there's electronic line calling at the U S open this year. So you'd think, okay, you know, there, there won't be much that could go wrong in Nick's head and everything might be smooth, right? Well, wrong because he finds something. And, uh, in this case, he, he found that RBA was serving too quickly for him to, to go put the towel in its correct spot. So it was an argument with Carlos Bernardes in the chair over where yeah. he could put the towel. And mentally, he, he went away. He started that match fantastically. Yeah. He really did. And I think it the, the whole towel situation affected him. And guess what? How many players have been affected by the towels all tournament long? I haven't seen one. Wow. So everyone's okay with it. It's a non-issue for everyone, yeah. but it's a problem for Nick. Plus, the, the bigger problem, Mitch, because it, it, it had also been a very long time since he had lost first round at a major. He's very dangerous early on. But eventually, his body breaks down. And he's going to have to put in the hard work to, to make his body ready if he ever wants to start making runs regularly. That's the bigger problem for Nick. The, the whole, you know, the stuff with the towels and stuff, sometimes time to time that can get him. But the bigger issue is that his body will break down and it will happen kind of repeatedly, almost like a timer. Um, so I don't ever think we see him get into the top 30, but I probably think that, that he still has a couple more years of entertaining crowds and, uh, and maybe getting into some fourth rounds and 
may be making some noise as far as upsetting top seeds goes. Do you know how ridiculous that sounds, right? Like he doesn't, like he had a problem with Batista Gut serving too fast. This guy's one of the fastest servers in the game. Like, I, like, and, <laughs> and, and I think part of it is he's just looking for something. Like he's, he's looking, it's always something different. We can list them off, whether it's noise in the crowd, whether it's something that his opponent's doing, his opponent complaining about him going too fast, an umpire's call, like the electronic, you know, the let calls. It seems like it's always something for him. And, and I agree. It's, it's a lot to do with fitness. It's a lot to do with commitment. I think he's great for the sport when he's locked in. He's exciting. He draws fans. He entertains crowds. No one is forcing him to be a pro tennis player. It's his choice. It's, it's what he wants to do. And, you know, who are we to judge? But also, who are we to expect greatness at this point anymore? Exactly. I think the expectations really need to be shifted. Um, the, the Billie Jean King quote, I think, is so apt to him because she once said uh, either uh, persistence is talent or hard work is talent um, or is a talent. Uh, and in that respect, we say, OK, you know, Nick's wasting his talent. Nick, Nick has so much talent that, that he's not using. Well, you know, maybe that's not true because maybe he is doesn't have the ability to work hard and maybe that's something that is part of of great tennis players um that should be valued and and nick just might not have it and that's okay Mm -hmm. but exactly what you said we need to stop expecting that he's going to suddenly start to use his incredible serve and his unbelievable hands and translate that into a lot of success at the highest level Nick Kyrgios' career uh, remains an enigma. Gil Gross, thank you for joining uh, Tennis Channel Inside In. Stay safe in New York City. And uh, I don't know if we've seen the billboards yet. Uh, you know, local ball boy makes good. But you were a ball boy at this tournament, and now you're covering it. So uh, congrats on that. And thank you again for joining the podcast. Thanks, Mitch. This was fun. Let's do it again. Big thanks to both guests, Chanda Rubin and Gil Gross, for appearing on today's show. And if you want to hear this episode of Inside In as well as every single one in the catalog, just go to the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, tennis.com slash podcast, where you can find this show's entire archive of episodes as well as every single podcast on the network. Great stuff on the all-new tennis.com website. The TC team is pumping out some great content. Proud to be a part of it. Check out the YouTube page as well for full episodes of Tennis Channel Insight and on the Tennis Channel YouTube page. This was Tennis Channel Insight and we'll be back next week as we always are each Thursday with a new episode. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the U.S. Open.